0: Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, working to change how cancer is treated with personalized medicine. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Dr. Anise Chagpar and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about gynecologic oncology and HPV-related cancers with Dr. Elena Ratner. Dr. Ratner is an associate professor of obstetrics, gynecology, and reproductive sciences at Yale School of Medicine and co-chief in the section of gynecologic oncology. Dr. Gore is a professor of internal medicine in hematology at Yale and director of hematologic malignancies at Smilo Cancer Hospital.
1: So GYN cancers, I think, uh, you know, it seems to me like a lot of women know they're supposed to be seeing their GYN for reproductive health. Hopefully, uh, everybody knows that. Um, And I wonder how many how many of the patients of how many healthy women understand exactly what they're being screened for in terms of normal GYN health. You know, obviously, people get pap smears. We all know that. And And then they get all these kind of unusual physical exams and stuff. So, what what are people being screened for cancer-wise?
2: That's actually an excellent question because uh, we uh, frequently have women asking exactly that. Um, So yes, it is imperative for women to see their gynecologist uh, because so much right now in gynecologic cancers is about prevention. We don't even talk about uh, treating cancers or even finding them early anymore. The future and the present is about cancer prevention. Um, So when a woman sees her gynecologist, Her gynecologist can screen her for cervical cancer, and that's where pap smears come into play. And we'll talk a little bit more later today about checking HPV as part of that workup. Mm -hmm. Uh, But additionally, that's not the only thing. Additionally, women also have a good pelvic exam. And that looks for any cysts or any masses in the ovary or any masses in the pelvis or any abnormalities with the uterus. So even though we don't really have screening tests uh, for uterine cancer or ovarian cancer, pelvic exam serves as that.
1: But how common are those cancers in patients who are otherwise healthy? I mean, you know, you're talking about women of reproductive age or post-reproductive age and... You know, is this really something people should be worried about?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Endometrial cancer is the most common gynecologic cancer. Um, In the United States, there's an epidemic of endometrial cancer, partly because of obesity. Um, Obesity increases risk of endometrial cancer. The good thing about endometrial cancer is that they are symptoms and they are signs, and so much of what we do is awareness for women to know that if they ever have bleeding after they have reached menopause, that that is not normal. Mm. And once they have the bleeding and they go see the gynecologist, usually these cancers are diagnosed very early and they're completely curable. So this is where prevention comes into play. And in this case, prevention is awareness, just knowing that once you reach menopause and you no longer get your periods, if you start bleeding, that that is not normal Mm. and that you need to see your provider.
1: But not every bleeding postmenopausally is cancer, right? I
2: was just going to take that. Thank you. you. took it away from me. So, but yes, please remember, absolutely not all bleeding, actually most bleeding postmenopausally will not be cancer. There's so many reasons it could be. There's polyps, there's atrophy, there's all kinds of benign things. Hmm. But the key never is... Never normal. The key is to never normal and always see your provider because they can see why the bleeding is happening.
1: Hmm. Well, you know, I, I hear, you know, I'm clearly not a woman and I've never had a pelvic exam. It might surprise you, but it's true. Uh, but I, I know that it's not something women traditionally look forward to, many women. And, and you know, I know obviously there's ultrasound and CT scans and MRIs and. You know, surf, you know, um, biomarkers and stuff. And so, I mean, is there still really a role for a physical exam? Shouldn't we just be scanning everybody yearly or something like that?
2: Yeah, so that's a wonderful question as well. Uh, Because, yes, in this day and age, we're all so tempted to just order a test, but. In gynecology, nothing is as important as a physical exam. Really? Yeah. There's nothing that is better than your fingers. When you feel for the cysts or nodularity, there's nothing that is better. CAT scans are not better. Ultrasounds are not better. so, currently, um, there's guidelines that are changing in pap smear screening. Mm-hmm. This just happened a couple of months ago, and uh, what the new screening uh, guidelines are is that instead of pap smears, you can just have an HPV test. Mm-hmm. Um, HPV test is very easy. It is like a pap smear. And the reason we do that is because we know that for cervical cancer, um, HPV is the definitive test. Uh, great, great majority of cervical cancers and pre-cancers are HPV related. So if a woman does not have HPV, then her risk of cervical cancer or pre-cancer is significantly lower. No kidding. Yeah. And yeah. now, because of that, and because of all this literature, and because of um, cost. Savings. These kind of testing can be done once every five years. No kidding. Yeah, right. But it's so important, and this is why I'm bringing it up at this juncture: is that we do not confuse guidelines for Pap smear or guidelines for cervical cancer screening with the need of still seeing your gynecologist once a year. I see.
1: And is the screening the H the screening for the papilloma virus? Is that done with a cervical swab? Or is it a blood test? Or how do you do that?
2: At this time, it is a swab that you do kind of just like a pap smear. um, And there's different ways of getting it done. And once this test is negative, then depending on your age, women don't have to get it repeated for a good three to five years. Right.
1: And if it's positive, does that mean they have
2: cancer? No, not at all. HPV, human papillomavirus, is very, very common. Um, There's certain ages where 80 to 90 percent of women have it. Mm -hmm. And HPV virus by itself actually does not cause too much trouble. It's only the HPV virus that doesn't clear itself. Ah. So we never check HPV virus in young women. We never check it in women um, younger than 30 because so many of them will have it and so many of them, majority of them will clear it. Hmm. So those HPV viruses don't matter. The ones that we watch a little bit closer are the ones that persist after age 30 and those are the women that need that test and the pap smears have been done more frequently than three to five years.
1: So they still get regular pap smears, the people who are HPV positive. Correct. Uh-huh. What about the stigma associated with HPV? I mean, traditionally, it's a sexually transmitted virus. We still have a bit of a puritanical culture in many parts of our country. Do you have a problem getting women past that?
2: So that's another wonderful question. Um, Yes, you know, it is so it it is very much um, an issue that comes up and the question that comes up. And most importantly, it comes up with vaccination. Um, As you know, we have had this Gardasil um, vaccine Mm -hmm. um, that's now been out probably a good 10 years, if not more. um, And it has been incredibly, incredibly successful. In decreasing rates of HPV and hence decreasing rates of pre-cancer and it's cancer. Amazing. It is incredible. It is what we've always looked for. We dreamed always look. Right? We've always dreamed of exactly. We've always dreamed and, and as a as a physician who deals with this all the time, I actually see this on an everyday basis. You know, my cervical cancers that I see are way less, precancers I see are way less. It is it's a dream. It's what we we dream for so all much cancers. Vacation time, right? <laughs> it's what we dream for all cancers. But the truth remains is that a lot of a lot of states and some women do not vaccinate their children because of the stigma that this carries. And there is no stigma, and there shouldn't be stigma. This is a very prevalent, very common virus that is very, very contagious. It's very easy to get. Um, a lot of women, a lot of men have it. Um, and there shouldn't be stigma. There should it really should just be a way for prevention and and cure of this cancer so that cervical cancer should not exist in the future. Mm.
1: Why are you letting the fathers off the hook?
2: Oh, not at all, not at all. Not the fathers, not the boys. You know, I have two older boys who both got this vaccine. Right. Um, I think this is something that's pre- you know prevalent, and everybody should should be vaccinated. You know, HPV doesn't just cause cervical cancer; it causes vaginal cancer, it causes vulvar cancer for men. It causes anal cancer, and for women, it causes anal cancer. It can cause throat cancer. You know, so this is not something that women should be singled out. And again, this is an opportunity, not just for women, but also for men, not to have to deal with cancers in the future.
1: Right. I think it's important uh, for people to know about the head and neck cancer in men. Again, when you start talking about anal cancer, we're talking about not only you know puritanical feelings about sexuality in general, but then we have this whole issue about how comfortable people are with acknowledging that they don't know whether their boys eventually will be heterosexual or homosexual, right? I mean, this is, Absolutely. This is part of our changing society, although I think it's getting better.
2: I do. You know, um, coming just from a conference in Europe, it is so... Um, not even a conversation in Europe and it continues to be a conversation here. And I think that's just, but yes, I agree with you. I think, I think we are now seeing the fruits of the first badge of these vaccinations. We're now seeing much less of these pre cancers and cancers and not just as physicians, I think as women, as patients, we see this. So Mm -hmm. I think this is the fruits of the labor.
1: Yeah, it's terrific. And do you think that pediatricians are, um, How do I want to put this? Are pediatricians doing their job in promoting the vaccinations?
2: I do. I certainly do. I mean, at least here in Connecticut, it's super, super rare that I see a younger woman now who hasn't had a vaccine. Oh,
1: so the uptake is pretty good around here. Absolutely. Yeah. No, we were very excited when, uh, you know, our son was just about the right age when they approved it for boys. I think we might have even done it before it was approved for boys because we just knew that it was the right thing to do. Um, And, you know... It's always been my hope as a parent that my children will have a healthy uh, sexual life uh, when they're adults, right? I mean, none of us want our kids to be celibate, I I don't think. Seriously. And, you know, the the fact of life is that uh, in our society, sexuality is not one partner the rest of your life, often for, for many people.
2: Of course. And again, this is, you know, we shouldn't look at it as that. We should look at this as cancer prevention, right. period. You know, this is not about values or, or future hopes. This is truly, singly cancer prevention.
1: Right. And and, and back to the whole exam thing, the vaginal uh, or vaginal rectal exams, uh, a—I it, think it's important for women to know, maybe everybody knows this, maybe, I don't know, uh, that your risk of cancer doesn't stop when you're in the uh, post-reproductive ages, post-menopause, or if you're not sexually active. Am I correct there? That's
2: exactly correct. On contrary, most of our cancers um, do appear later in age, you know, in the, in, the, in the women's 60s, late 50s, mid-60s. So, yes, you're absolutely correct. On contrary, uh, once women reach menopause and go through menopause, this is very much the time not to stop seeing their providers. It is very much the time to continue. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, I've heard recently on the radio, um there's, I think, I don't know if it's a book or if it's a, I think it's a documentary about Gilda Radner, the great comedian who unfortunately died of uh, very early ovarian cancer. Mm-hmm, and I, mm-hmm. I just think of that as being a reminder. And um, my guess is she was getting good medical care. I don't, oh, who of knows? Course. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So, you know, we talked uh, a little bit ago about uterine cancer. And I mentioned how the good thing about uterine cancer is that there's signs and symptoms. And that's why uh, a great, great majority of these cancers are diagnosed early and cured. Um, Ovarian cancer, unfortunately, is not like that. You know, we call ovarian cancer uh, the cancer that whispers uh, because there's so few signs and symptoms. However, we actually don't think that's true anymore. We don't necessarily think that ovarian cancer is whispering. We just think that nobody's listening. Um, Typical men. (laughs) And and, and
1: women. It goes both ways. Um,
2: But we do actually think that even women with ovarian cancer do have symptoms and do have early symptoms. And so much of this, again, is just education and about awareness.
1: Okay, well, we're going to want to pick up at that after the break.
0: Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, a biopharmaceutical business that is pushing the boundaries of science to deliver new cancer medicines. More information at astrazeneca us.com. This is a medical minute about melanoma. While melanoma accounts for only about 4% of skin cancer cases, it causes the most skin cancer deaths. When detected early, however, melanoma is easily treated and highly curable. Clinical trials are currently underway to test innovative new treatments for melanoma. The goal of the Specialized Programs of Research Excellence in Skin Cancer, or SPORE, grant is to better understand the biology of skin cancer with a focus on discovering targets that will lead to improved diagnosis and treatment. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio.
1: Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Stephen Gore. I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Elena Ratner, and we are discussing gynecologic oncology and HPV-related cancers. Uh, Elena, just before the the break, you uh, said something I I found very interesting, uh, that ovarian cancer used to be kind of like the silent, thought of as the silent cancer they didn't cause symptoms because of where the ovaries sit and all that but you're saying that now you're recognizing that there are symptoms oftentimes so.
2: oh yeah there have been there have been some studies and some really good studies that show that um, even at the early stages women do have symptoms um, some bowel symptoms some bladder symptoms uh, clothes not fitting very well not eating great um, and in the older days like five years ago. Hmm. Um, it, used to so be, <laughs> it used to be chucked up just to menopause. I mean, hmm. this was a common thing. You know, women would go see their providers and pretty much be told, um, you know, this is just normal hormonal changes. And, you know, that is... Probably true, right? In great majority of women, this is just normal menopausal changes. What separates women who actually have something that needs to be looked at closely from those who just have hormonal changes is that in women with ovarian cancer, these symptoms happen every single day Mm. for two weeks versus women uh, with hormonal changes. It just comes and goes. Mm. Um, But again, you know, so much of, you know, gynecologic cancer landscape is so different now. It's really drastically changing. So much is about awareness and educating women about what's normal, what's not normal, and you know, also not taking no for an answer. You know, this is always what I say. You know, the current study says that when a woman right now gets diagnosed with ovarian cancer, she has probably had this cancer for 18 to 24 months, mm. and she usually has seen six providers before the cancer gets diagnosed. So I usually say, you know, women know their bodies better than anybody. You or your advocate. You know something is wrong, you go and you get the answer. And you don't say no, and you don't accept uh, this is normal until you satisfied.
1: Well, you know, I'll take my bad marks as a male physician, because, you know, over the years, uh, my wife, you know, was worried when she was having maybe some constipation symptoms or something. The first thing she thinks about, you know, is, oh, my God, I hope I don't have ovarian cancer. And I'm thinking, OK, come on. I mean, what's the chance? But, you know, the truth is what you're saying is that, you know, it's not the craziest thing to worry about. And of course, she, knock on wood, gets herself checked out and she's fine, as far as we know, of, of course. But um and that's the key but I but I dismissed her.
2: Right, well, I just want to.
1: I apologize, Amy. I didn't mean to be (laughs) dismissive.
2: You know, the key is exactly what you just said. You know, ovarian cancer is not common. we got to remember that it is very, you know, 1.4% uh, chance of having ovarian cancer. So, yes, great majority of women do not have ovarian cancer and will not have ovarian cancer. But it's all about awareness. It's all about knowing. And when something doesn't feel right, really just going to your provider. That's all it takes, you know, and having a good exam. And and then that's that, you know.
1: So an exam is sufficient, a vaginal exam by a good GYN.
2: Yeah. So we don't call them vaginal exams. <laughs>
1: Uh, pelvic, exam.
2: pelvic exams. Pelvic exams. <laughs> um, yes, having, I'm sorry. <laughs> having a good exam by your provider <laughs> would uh, tell you whether you need anything else. And that's something else, would be an ultrasound. Sometimes we get ultrasounds. You know, th- w- coming back to the beginning um, of our conversation, the reason why um, ultrasounds is not enough is that ultrasound by itself actually is not great. Mm. But ultrasound together with a good pelvic exam would be um, a very good assessment and would be sufficient.
1: Gotcha. Well, then, you know, it's it's certainly interesting. And uh, what I wonder about is um, hormones. Like for a long time, the, you know, women were put on, many women were put on, uh, you know, estrogen re- replacement. And of course, some still are for postmenopausal symptoms. It's, And then for a while, that was seen as you know, potentially contributing to cancer, as I recall. And I think there's always been some concern about uh, oral contraceptives. What's, what, where are we at with uh, with hormonal therapies, both contraceptives and, and menopause treatment and the cause, causation of cancer?
2: Right. So you, you really uh, brought up a very important and very kind of divisive question. Mm. Um, so birth control pills um, unquestionably reduce your risk of ovarian cancer. Absolutely. The best protection besides awareness and besides knowing your family history and knowing if you are at high risk in terms of genetics. But besides that, the best thing that every woman can do for herself to decrease her risk of ovarian cancer is to take birth control pills. Hmm. Any woman who takes birth control pills for five years decreases her risk by 50%. Oh, that's amazing. Yep. The other way you can get that reduction is to have five children and to breastfeed each one of them for one year. That's the plan. I'm working, <laughs> I'm working on that plan. <laughs> but most other people go with birth control pills. Um, yes, of course, you got to make sure because, you know, birth control pills, you know, you cannot take. If you had a history of blood clots, you know, it's very sure, much it's an individual. It's not for everybody. It's very much an individual decision. But, you know, this is, this is again, the, the present and the future is personalized care and really listening to everybody and understanding their history and understanding their risk and then understanding how you can mitigate those risks, how those risks can be reduced. Birth control pills unquestionably decrease your risk significantly. Mm. Um, And these pills, these birth control pills do not have to be taken at the same time. It could be, you know, two years here, two years there. It's a cumulative benefit, you know. So I always tell all my friends, all my girlfriends, somehow try to get in five years of birth control pills during your lifetime so that your risk of ovarian cancer is decreased significantly. Fascinating. Um, Hormone replacement therapy is a more difficult discussion. Yes, you're absolutely correct. In the older days, everybody, every woman pretty much who reached menopause would be placed on hormone replacement for her symptoms. And then studies came out, including the nurse's study um, that showed um, that these women had a higher risk of breast cancer. And at that point, everything stopped and pretty much all women were taking off. Um, Some of the providers in the community always tell me stories how the morning after That study um, was published. They couldn't even get into their office because their phones would just ring because everybody was so Mm -hmm. afraid and everybody was taking off. But that is also not the case. We, again, are now much better about understanding who needs it, who doesn't need it, what are the risks, what are the benefits. Um, you know, in particular, you know, I do a lot of surgeries for women who have genetic mutations where they go into menopause at young age, let's say 35 or 40. These women unquestionably need hormone replacement. It is not detrimental to them, it's beneficial. It is detrimental for them not to have hormone replacement. And we have many, many studies that show that it's completely safe. Mm. So um, we know now that um, estrogen by itself is much safer than we thought. So we no longer say yes or no. This is again very much an individualized decision. It matters you know, how old the woman is, what her risks are, what her benefits are, and what her symptoms are. Uh, but we use, certainly, even myself as an oncologist, I routinely use hormone replacement therapy in my
1: practice. Yeah, you know, that's really good to hear or to know about uh, because the scare was was pretty big for a long time. Yeah, when you talk about these surgeries for genetic problems, are are you talking about? A prophylactic surgery for women who are at risk of ovarian cancer and breast cancer.
2: Exactly, exactly. So, so um, this kind of adds on the, the conversation on prevention, uh, where we mentioned uh, previously that uh, the biggest, the important, the most important aspect of this is to know your risk. So we really need to understand who are the women who are at increased risk of developing these cancers, ovarian cancer and breast cancer in particular. Um, and with these cancers, there are certain genetic mutations. Um, uh, that we are always looking for. Um, some of them are called BRCA mutation. Uh, this is the mutation that Angelina Jolie wrote about, and yeah. that actually what what made it kind of commonplace is her New York Times articles. And
1: she had bilateral mastectomies prophylactically, right?
2: And she had her ovaries removed prophylactically. Oh, I forgot about um, that. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And it's you know it's a it's a challenging challenging information to have, but knowledge is power. Once you know, you are able to prevent. Cancers and make sure that they don't happen.
1: Such a tough decision, I imagine.
2: It is a difficult decision, but it is a much better decision than having to deal with cancer. Um, so much is available right now for prevention, and it's not just hysterectomies or removing ovaries or mastectomies. There's so much more. you know. There's just closer screening. Uh, there's more tests. There's closer exams. Um, and, of course, this kind of genetic testing is not for everybody. Um, this is really for women who, for whatever reason, are considered to be at high risk, which mean that they have a number of family members who have had ovarian cancer, breast cancer, but I certainly do not want all the women to worry whether they have gene, this gene or not. Uh, this gene is not very um, common, especially uh, not in the Jewish Ashkenazi population.
1: It is common among Ashkenazi Jews.
2: It is more common in the Ashkenazi Jews. And again, in the older days, we used to say, oh, if you're not Ashkenazi Jewish, then you You don't don't ever have to worry. That's not true. But that is totally not the case. There's uh, Italian women, there's Mexican women, there's all kinds of populations that also carry these mutations. But again, this is not for general population. This is not for everybody. This is just for women who have a strong family history of these cancers.
1: So what is considered a strong family history? One first degree relative with breast cancer, two... Well, who should be worried? A lot of women have breast cancer. It's common.
2: Breast cancer is common, and yeah, uterine cancer is common. Uterine cancer is actually not a genetic cancer for for most part. Um, The women we worry about are the ones whose family history includes women who got ovarian cancer uh, pretty much at any age or breast cancer before menopause. I see. In the older days, again, a few years back, before Myriad um, had the Supreme Court hearing and they lost the pen for the testing, it used to be really, really expensive. So we need to have this very strict guidelines as to who can be tested because of insurance um, being able to approve it. That is no longer the case. You know, Myriad is now just one of the companies who provides this test. So we are now a little bit freer in terms of ordering this test because it is much more affordable and many companies are able to do it. But I usually say, you know, seeing a genetic counselor um, has a lot of benefits. You don't need to necessarily get tested for genes, but they will help you understand your pedigree, the will help you understand what cancers run in the family, and if you are at an increased risk for one cancer or another. So I find genetic counseling uh, an imperative part of this. And if you have any concerns at all um, about your family history or that you might be at high risk, I would urge you to start with that.
1: Hmm. And so even among Ashkenazi Jewish women, not everybody should be screened for BRCA. Uh so you know, <laughs> you're not you know, so sure about that. So
2: there's debate, and there's um, some editorials that's been written about that maybe everybody should. And uh, no, the guidelines right now is no, that of course not everybody should. and you, We really should look at our family history. Uh, but yes, it is more prevalent; it's more common in Jewish Ashkenazi population. So it would not be unreasonable.
1: Yeah, I have to say my 23andMe, which I did, screened me for BRCA1 and two. I mean, it was just something that popped out. and Obviously, it's not a medical test, um, but it was kind of interesting. And I don't know if they do that for everybody or if they do that because I self-identify or – well, actually, I genetically identify as an Ashkenazi Jew, actually, to tell you the truth. Interestingly, uh, off the topic, but I did find that I have – I'm a carrier of an Ashkenazi-associated deafness gene. So, uh, yeah, and uh, we have two friends in, uh, in Baltimore, Ashkenazi Jews, who have two out of their three children are deaf and there's no deafness in their family. So presumably, yeah, so you never know. It's kind of interesting.
2: And we're actually learning so much now from 23andMe or from Ancestry. You'd be amazed how many women I'm actually now managing or seeing who have a BRCA gene diagnosed on one of those Is tests. Is that kidding? Yeah. You're not kidding. Yeah, all the time. You know,
1: that's so interesting. people yeah. are doing this for, yeah. you know, mostly for kind of interesting social yeah. reasons. But, yeah. you know, but, and for a long time, they weren't allowed to d- disclose their medical information. The FDA had prohibited that for a while.
2: Right. But now women are learning not just about their ethnicity, but exactly as you said about the genetic, genetic mutations that they could have.
1: Yeah. Well, so what's your feeling about that? Just kind of curious because they're not getting genetic counseling there. And, you know, you get this thing in the email and it says, oh, by the way, well are i people mean people freaking out oh yeah <laughs> oh yeah
2: I would freak out yeah. but you know I'm again a very huge believer that knowledge is power you know we are given with the knowledge that we have and now um, I just wish the 23 andme with these companies would actually put in like a next line saying if this is what you have you this is what screened. you should be you should get yeah. screened you should see a genetic counselor and I feel like most people at least here in Connecticut are finding their way to appropriate uh, you know genetic counselors or genetic oncologists or breast oncologists with the information. Huh.
1: Well, that's really interesting. I hadn't actually expected that. But like I say, it, it happened to me, uh, you know, in this in this way. I, you know, I don't know what I would have done that with that information had I, um, had I had that when we were having kids. Although I suppose I might have had my wife screened.
2: And this is just the beginning. You know, we are just at the infancy of this information. You know, yeah. we know so much more now than we knew six months ago. And I think this is only going to be growing bigger and bigger. And I think it's a wonderful thing.
0: Dr. Elena Ratner is an associate professor of obstetrics, gynecology, and reproductive sciences at Yale School of Medicine and co-chief in the section of gynecologic oncology. If you have questions, the address is yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.